You're listening to the What We Were podcast. This podcast is devoted to looking at important events and issues that affect us from around the world and that cry out for a new perspective that breaks the binary we often find ourselves trapped in. Our goal in doing so is to arrive just a few steps closer to what might be called the truth. Welcome. We're starting with the story of the disappearance of Gabby Petito, which took place in 2021. That name will probably be familiar to a lot of you. The story was all over the news. It was wall-to-wall coverage for several weeks. So what I want to do here is I'm going to begin by just giving you some basic facts as it was laid out by our national media and our local media when it happened, Uh, sort of like what anyone who was paying attention at that time would have known without digging too much deeper. So I'm going to lay that out. I'm going to introduce some new information that you may or may not have heard, or just may not be new to you, but it's just looking at this information in a new light, perhaps. So let's begin with just a basic timeline and some basic facts around what took place around the disappearance of Gabby Petito in the year 2021. So Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie are the two primary people in this story. There are others in the story, but Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie are, you know, they're the main characters, okay? So Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito went to the same high school in Bayport, New York. Brian was a year older than her, so he graduated in 2016. Uh, Gabby didn't graduate until 2017. They knew each other in high school, but they did not start dating until after they had both graduated. So after high school, they started dating and they eventually uh, get engaged on July 2nd, 2020. 2020 is the year of COVID, of course. And so they postponed their wedding plans since it was everything was locked down and it was during COVID. And on December 11th, 2020, Gabby announces on Instagram that she had just purchased a 2012 white Ford Transit that she was excited to take road trips with her fiance, uh, Brian Laundry. So on July 2nd, they depart from Blue Point, New York after celebrating Gabby's younger brother's high school graduation. So it's July 2nd, 2021, exactly one year to the day of their engagement. They visit several places across the West. Uh, They go to Colorado Springs. Actually, they started in Monument Rock, Kansas um, on July 4th. Then they go to Colorado Springs July 8th. By July 10th, they're at Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve in Colorado. July 16th, they're in Zion National Park in Utah. July 21st, they're in Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah. And July 26th, they're in Mystic Hot Springs. Then they get to Canyonlands National Park. And on August 12th, they're at Arches National Park in Utah. And this is when, I guess you could say, the first issues start happening. Um, On August 12th, uh, the same day they visited Arches National Park, they have an altercation in Moab, Utah. Uh, someone else, some some bystander called the police to report disorderly conduct, a male assaulting a female, 
and they had an interaction with police. Moab police say that there were no reports by either of them of Brian Laundrie hitting Petito, although Petito did admit to slapping Brian Laundrie. Uh, she did have some marks on her face, although she never claimed to have been hit. So that's what we have. That's, that's the information that we have. On August 19th, so that's one week after that altercation in Moab, they post their first and only YouTube video on their YouTube channel called Nomadic Static. The video is still up. You can look for it. I'll post a link to it in this podcast description, but it's a quick video. It's a little bit under eight minutes and they just, Brian and Gabby come across as like extremely likable people. I think if you watched that video, you couldn't help but come away with just thinking you would want to have a drink or have a conversation with either of these people. They just both seem like they have kind of a lust for life and they just, they both seem very polite and they just seem like good people, Brian and Gabby. And they, they, they look like they're in love. They really do. So, so yeah, so that's posted on, um, August 19th, rewinding just two days here. Brian flies home to Florida where his parents lived uh, from Salt Lake City on August 17th. So that was two days prior to the to that video being posted. He flies home to Florida on August 17th and then he flies back six days later to meet back up with Gabby, who I guess stayed behind. So I guess they continue their travels. This is there's a little bit of a gap here in the record from what I've been able to find. But on August 27th, they are seen once again arguing in a restaurant in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And it's an intense argument, and it's enough that it caused a scene, and employees at the restaurant remember it and, and, and you know, has spoken to police about, about what happened. The restaurant, you know, I've looked it up. It's, it's a very, like, ordinary restaurant. It's like, a, it's like a cheap place you would go. It's a Tex-Mex restaurant. It's like a place that you would just go if you, you know, maybe you're, on a, you're on a travel budget, right? You're, you're trying not to spend a whole lot of money. So that's where this argument happened. So that's August 27th, 2021. And probably something terrible happens between August 27th and September 1st, although we don't know for sure. But Brian Laundrie returns home on September 1st. And he, he returns home without Gabby Petito. But he's driving her 2012 Ford Transit, which I guess was in her name. I think they kind of bought it as a couple. But he returns home without her. And... He has dinner with his family, with his sister and his parents on September 6th. Gabby Petito's mother files a missing persons report on September 11th after not hearing from her since late August. She actually got a text message from Gabby's phone on August 30th, but it was kind of cryptic and she's not really sure if if Gabby actually sent that or if someone else sent that. If Brian sent that, I don't know. But she had not heard from her since late August. And so she files that missing persons report on September 11th, 2021. So now it's, uh, you know, the eyes of the media, probably the police, are on Brian Laundrie. And the location of his family home, of his parents' home, is known by the media. And media and protesters and just curious people begin gathering outside of the home in Florida and just kind of, you know, wondering what's going on. And apparently Brian Laundrie 
left to hike the Carlton Reserve, uh, some sort of a like a nature preserve near their home in Florida on September 13th. And the parents here apparently originally told investigators that he left on Tuesday, September 14th, but actually he left on Monday, September 13th. So that was corrected later. So, you know, there was some suspicion there that they were trying to mislead investigators or, or whatever. But Brian Laundrie is not officially named a person of interest by the FBI until September 15th. So he's already been home with his family, kind of hiding out. And, you know, the media is kind of looking very suspiciously at him, understandably, right? He's the last person to be seen alive with Gabby Petito. They had that altercation in Moab. So, you know, there's plenty of reason to suspect that he may have been involved in her disappearance, right? So Brian Laundrie is named a person of interest by the FBI on September 15th. During this time, uh, you see protesters outside of the Laundrie home and, you know, they're, they're demanding that the parents cooperate, uh, tell them where their son is and tell the police where their son is or hand over their son. People thought that, uh, you know, the family was hiding their son or covering up evidence or something like that. So on September 19th. So this is five days after Brian Laundrie essentially goes missing. You know, he goes on a hike on September 19th. Human remains matching the description of Gabby Petito are found at the Spread Creek uh, dispersed camping area in Wyoming near Grand Teton National Park, which is not far from uh, where their Ford Transit van was was observed by someone. So this is September 19th. So again, where we are you know, Brian's been off somewhere hiking, running away from police for six days. And human remains, uh, Gabby Petito's remains are found uh, near Grand Teton National Park. Her identity is confirmed and the autopsy results determined that the manner of death was homicide by blunt force injuries to the head and neck with manual strangulation. So that is on September 19th. So we now have a body and Brian Laundrie is missing, and his parents are not being terribly forthcoming or, or, or cooperative with police, which is really raising the ire of, of just everyday citizens and, of course, the media. On October 21st, uh, human remains are found and confirmed to be Brian Laundrie's. There's a notebook that is found near his body in which Laundrie basically admits to taking her life. There's a lot more context to this note that he wrote, but... In part, he says, I ended her life. I thought it was merciful that it was what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. So the headline from that from the media was, uh, you know, Brian Laundrie confesses to killing Gabby Petito, essentially. So those are the basic facts. We have a young couple who appear to be, you know, madly in love, who both appear to be wonderful human beings, according to their, you know, their friends and, and family, um, and, and just their social media posts and fiance, the female fiance in this case, Gabby Petito goes missing and is, and is later turns up dead. It's really kind of a classic tale of a romance gone wrong. And it's, it's very easy to see how a man may have turned violent against his fiance and, and killed her. I mean, this is, we have seen this many times in history. So what I want to take you through now is kind of how how I saw this playing out and the mistakes that I think were made 
along the way by our media and, and, and really just by us, those of us who are just observing this from a distance uh, from our TV sets and, and uh, you know, reading, reading newspaper articles at home. So one way I want to look at what happened is to think about this story from the perspective of a Hollywood movie and to think of, you know, the main characters as, as actors in a Hollywood movie and try to, you know, imagine how, how you might react watching that Hollywood movie. And it's a movie. And so you're, you're necessarily going to have much more context than we will ever have about this story of Gabby Petito's disappearance and eventually her death. And it's not hard to see how this could be a Hollywood movie. I mean, there, there, are, there are lots of movies with uh, plots that are very close to something like this, where you have a, a couple who's deeply in love, but, you know, very flawed, of course, like all of us. And, you know, they take a trip or they go about their relationship and things happen, things are said, and, you know, some of the uglier aspects of their personalities start to come to the forefront and bad things happen. Mistakes happen, accidents happen, and terrible things happen. You know, evil happens. And from the perspective of a moviegoer, watching something like this play out in, the Holly in a Hollywood movie, you know, if you could imagine Leonardo DiCaprio or perhaps a younger actor playing the role of Brian Laundrie and you know, Gabby Petito being played by some young female actor, you, you can think of whoever you want. In the context of watching a movie like this, unless it's a horror film, you naturally empathize with all the characters. So, you know, you see this Gabby is just this sweetheart, right? Like she just seems like such a sweetheart from all of her social media posts. Uh, she's a beautiful young girl. You, you can't help but like her. She just looks like fun. She, she wants to go take a road trip with her fiance during the pandemic and just, you know, ha have, a, have a real romance. Brian, who appears at least on video and in their social media posts and, and in his writings about Gabby to be just, you know, a loving boyfriend and fiance. You would naturally empathize with these two. And you could sort of understand as a, again, in, in a movie theater, watching this play out and watching, you know, the arguments come up and the disagreements and then, you know, going back to having a, you know, the next day waking up and, you know, having a wonderful day exploring Zion National Park or going on a hike or something like that. And you can sort of see this, this pendulum swinging back and forth and you, you empathize with it because we've all been in relationships that were, that were rocky and that had, you know, had things that were said and done that shouldn't have been said or done. And, and you just empathize. And that's just what we do. That's, that's really the beauty of drama. That's really, I think what drama is for is to exercise your ability to empathize with people in situations that maybe you've never encountered. Not very many people have encountered killing their fiance or somehow being involved in her disappearance. But movies allow you to do that. You can go watch a movie and you can get the perspective of a mobster, of a mass murderer, of a bank robber. And if it's a good movie, if it's really well done, like a Scorsese movie, 
you walk out of that film having some respect and being able to empathize with just about every character in the movie. Doesn't matter how terrible they are. So I, tr- I try to bring that same mentality to real life because things that get played out in movies are just things that actually happen in real life. And I tried to bring that same approach to this situation as I was watching it unfold. And I noticed that there were not very many people who were doing that. Most people were just making the obvious assumptions, the understandable assumptions, and casting judgment without really knowing either of these two at all. And I thought that was problematic. And the way it played out, I I think was really ugly and I think was really a shame. I felt ashamed to be an American in a way as I was watching how our American media and just everyday Americans reacted to this story with zero benefit of the doubt given to the family of Brian Laundrie or to Brian Laundrie himself uh, with zero empathy for the family of, of Brian Laundrie. Obviously, there was empathy for Gabby Petito and her family, but that's, that's, that's easy empathy. It's easy to have empathy for Gabby Petito. She's gone. She's a young female. She's small stature. She... It's very easy to have empathy for her. It takes a little bit of effort to have empathy for the male in a situation like that or the family in that situation like that. But... I think we still need to do it. I think we still need to try to exercise that empathy. So, so now I want to take you through, you know, a re-examination of that timeline and some of the things that were done and question it a little bit about why things were done that way by our media, by just everyday Americans. So I have a bunch of articles basically in front of me here. And, um, I'll just kind of talk about a few things that were going on at the time and just give you some, some more context, essentially, some, to the situation. I want to provide additional context to maybe help you put yourself in the shoes of either Brian Laundrie's parents or his sister or anyone else who you have been sort of unable to empathize with in this situation thus far. So to begin with, by September 16th, which is just one day after Brian Laundrie is named a person of interest, not a suspect, but a person of interest by the FBI, just one day after that, protesters start showing up outside of Brian Laundrie's parents' home in Florida. You know, this is a modest home. It's, it's worth somewhere between $210,000 and $340,000. So I'm, I'm, I'm presuming based off of that information alone, that, you know, Brian Laundrie does not come from a wealthy family. This is like, at most, a a middle-class family, and protesters start showing up. So, Brian Laundrie has been gone from his home for three days. He's left his parents. They claim to not know his whereabouts. And, you know, within three days of that, protesters from wherever, from around the neighborhood and the surrounding area, are starting to show up at Brian Laundrie's parents' home. These protesters are holding up signs asking, you know, where is Gabby? Uh, They're chanting, where's Gabby? 
they have, you know, their placards read, the truth always comes out, justice for Gabby, would she bring you home? People are sending flowers to Brian Laundrie's parents' home, flowers for Gabby Petito to Brian Laundrie's home, uh, Brian Laundrie's parents' home, really just as a, as a deliberately sarcastic move to, you know, make the Laundrie family feel pressure and to feel guilty, I guess. You have neighbors. The media and, and people are literally camping out in uh, neighbors' yards, uh, the neighbors of the laundries. And these neighbors are charging the media, uh, media members, $3,500 per week to rent their lawn right in front of the Brian Laundrie's parents' house um, in order to get better coverage of the house. And I mean, you see, you can see pictures of, you know, neighbors driving around and parents driving their kids around in golf carts with their kids holding protest signs, you know, asking where's Gabby Petito and really shaming Brian Laundrie's parents for, you know, not doing more to, to bring him to justice and, and, and all this. This is where I really uh, started to not like the direction this was going in. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Brian Laundrie's parents, in this situation, I would argue that they are acting just about as normally as any parent would act in that situation, or any brother or sister would act in that situation. And I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of Brian Laundrie's parents, or even if you don't have kids, Try putting yourself in the shoes of, of, of being his sister, even a close friend of his. And I want you to imagine that your brother or your son or your best friend, who you think you know and love, gets suddenly mixed up in a terrible crime. And he is being accused by people of something terrible, of murdering his fiance. And you know this person, you're friends with this person, or it's your son, and you just cannot imagine him doing something like that. Hopefully you wouldn't be friends with someone or who would do something like that. And then hopefully if you thought your friend, your, your son would do something like that, gosh, I don't know. I would hope that you would uh, do something to try to get the, that person some help. But I don't think anyone in this situation hearing these rumors about what Brian Laundrie allegedly did, thought, yeah, that sounds a lot like Brian Laundrie. That sounds a lot like my son. That sounds a lot like my, my friend, my brother. And I think that the human reaction in that situation for anybody who would be close to someone like that would be to give them the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, the benefit of the doubt could be a lot of different things. It could be that, you know, he's, he's totally innocent or that it was an accident or that he was somehow in some way justified or defending himself or something like that. The human reaction, the natural human reaction for anybody who knew Brian Laundry in this situation would have been to have a little bit of empathy for him and to protect him from the media mob and the neighbor mob 
and even the police maybe in the beginning, you know, until, I don't know, until he can obtain a lawyer or something like that. You have to understand, you know, things are moving very, very quickly for these people, for this family. Within a matter of just a couple of weeks, you have to imagine, within just a couple of weeks, this family goes from thinking everything is just normal, you know, their son is out on a cross-country road trip with his fiance. They appear to be happy. And within two weeks, he's home without her. And the national media and the FBI is looking for him as a potential suspect in the disappearance of his fiance within a two-week span. So that's really too fast for, I think, most human minds to really comprehend and to really behave as rationally as you might hope that they would react in that situation. And so, yeah, the natural human response in that situation, I think if you're being honest with yourself, and if you can put yourself in the shoes of of his parents or his sister or anyone, it would be to understand why they might be reluctant to give police all the information about their son's whereabouts, why they might not want to be giving interviews to the media. And I just think that you have to empathize with people in that situation. And I honestly don't think it's that difficult to try and empathize with them. And I think if your best friend or your son did something similar, was was mixed up in something similar, and those accusations were trying to come in, you would also give him or her the benefit of the doubt And you might even try to protect them. And you might even do something illegal to try to protect them. But whatever happened, whether or not Brian Laundrie's parents, whether or not they, you know, did something wrong in, you know, not talking to the media or in not doing more to bring their son to the police station to be interviewed. I think the way that it was handled by our media to camp out in front of their home as they are going through this. This is a family crisis for them also. They have a son who is being accused of murder and who stands to get the death penalty or go to prison for the rest of his life if he's found guilty in that. This is a family crisis. And for American neighbors who you know, presumably just a few days before any of this would have gone to the laundry home to borrow a cup of sugar or wave to each other while walking their dogs or something like that. For those people to then turn around and allow the media to camp out in their yard and make money off of this family crisis and without knowing really any of the facts barely any facts of the case to go out and to, you know, encourage your kids to go out and and make these protest signs that can only, they, they can do nothing other than hurt the laundry family. I, I think that was wrong. And, you know, I just think that every detail of this case, which might have elicited some, some sympathy for the Laundry family was twisted in such a way as to demonize 
the Laundry family and to demonize Brian Laundry. I think that's wrong. And and so here's a couple of uh, other things that uh, that were reported. One of them was a letter that uh, Mrs. Laundry had written her son uh, that they had found in Brian Laundry's possessions. The letter read "Burn after reading," and in that letter, you know, the headline of this when this letter came out was that Brian Laundry's mother offered to help him uh, bury a body. This is uh, Fox 13, Utah. Laundry's mother wrote that she would help dispose of a body in burn after reading letter. Brian Laundry's mom offered to dispose of a body, letter says. Bombshell letter where Brian Laundry's mother vowed to dispose of a body. CBS News. Brian Laundry's mom said she would help him dispose of a body. Now, that headline is pretty damning, right? Not knowing when that, when that letter was written, assuming it was, you know, written after Gabby Petito goes missing. That's a pretty damning letter. The problem is, his mother claims it was not written. It was not written until... The problem is, Mrs. Laundry claims that that letter was written long before any of this ever happened. And Brian Laundry's mother claims in a sworn statement that she gave her son the letter before they left on that trip, which was uh, in... Uh, June of 2021 is when she claimed that she gave him that letter. And, and she said that I was trying to connect with Brian and repair our relationship as he was planning to leave home. She said, I had hoped this letter would remind him how much I loved him. Now, I'm, I'm going to read this letter in full because what we know from this letter is that she said burn after reading, which in the light of the disappearance and death of Gabby Petito is uh, a little bit alarming, but if it were truly written before any of that happened, it's really just a beautiful letter from my mother to a son. And it's, so, it's such a beautiful letter that you could understand whether the instructions for burn after reading were serious or, or in jest, why Brian Laundrie wouldn't burn this letter from his mother because it's beautifully written. And I want you to ask yourself, if you've ever used the kind of phrasing and figures of speech that his mother uses here. Because I think we all have. And to take those commonly used expressions that we use in sarcasm or to exaggerate or to emphasize points and to use that after the fact of a disappearance and, and to use that as evidence... It, I just think it's wrong. So I'm going to read this letter from uh, his mother. I'm gonna, it's, a, it's a handwritten letter, and all I have is a picture of it. So I'm going to try to read it as best I can. I just want you to remember, I will always love you. And I know you will always love me. You are my boy. Nothing can make me stop loving you. Nothing will or could ever divide us. No matter what we do or where we go or what we say, we will always love each other. If you're in jail, I will bake a cake with a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. If you fly to the moon, I will be watching the skies for your re-entry. If you say you hate my guts, I'll get new guts. Remember that love is a verb, not a noun. It's not a thing. It's not words. 
It is actions. Watch people's actions to know if they love you, not their words. She quotes here, Therefore, I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor the ruling spirits, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers from above, nor powers from below, nothing in the entire created world can separate our love. Neither hostile powers, nor messengers of heaven, nor monarchs of earth, nothing has the power to separate us. That's Romans 8.38. She concludes by saying, Nothing can separate us, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not threats, not even sin, not the thinkable or unthinkable can get between us. Not time, not miles, and miles, and miles. And, you know, she even uh, sketched a bird, it looks like, on that same note. And she writes um, after it, she writes burn after reading. So I have to say, that's one of the most beautiful letters I've ever seen from a mother to her son. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination for me to imagine my mom, my mom, writing something identical. I'm certain that, that the sentiments expressed in that letter are entirely shared by my mom and probably the majority of moms in the world. And you could say that that makes them accomplices to a crime, but I would just say it makes them mothers. Here's another headline. This is from the New York Post. Gabby Petito's boyfriend wrote cryptic till death do us part post last year. Now, that sounds scary. Like, it sounds like, wow, he's been thinking about murdering her for a long time. Well, here's the, here's the context of that. Some context. I don't think we have all the context. This is uh, Brian Laundrie. I think he's writing this on Instagram. My biggest fear is that one day I'll wake up and it will all have been a dream because that is what every second has felt like since the moment we found each other. Till death do us part or until I wake up. And once again, you know, just ask yourself if you've ever used that phrasing. It doesn't have to be in a, in a wedding vow, although that's what we do in wedding vows. We say till death do us part. There's nothing cryptic about that. That's just tradition. But ask yourself how often... We use that when, when, when we're trying to be romantic with a significant other. How, how often do lyrics, song lyrics use that? Romantic song lyrics use till death do us part. We could probably Google search and find a dozen songs that use that phrasing. Are those cryptic messages broadcasting some sort of uh, intent to, to kill someone? I, I, no, I don't think so. So I just want people to try to imagine what life must have been like and what life must still be like for the parents and the sister and the close friends and, and, the, and just the relatives of Brian Laundrie today and, and when they were going through this. Try to imagine what it's like for them to watch everyone in the world, everyone in the media, without exception, labeling their son an obvious cold-blooded killer without ever having a trial, without ever knowing much of the context of this case, and just deciding that he's, he's guilty until proven innocent. The way that American citizens reacted to this story, the people who showed up outside of the laundry home 
with signs to antagonize them and to shame them. The neighbors who made money off of this family tragedy are sick in some way. You know, I think that this story really represents a frightening inability of the average American. And maybe it's just the average human. Maybe it's not just Americans. But it certainly demonstrates a a, a scary inability to empathize with someone else's position that we've never experienced before. And that is not a good place to be in as a society. This could happen to anyone. I have seen nothing in all of my research that suggests the, the laundry family is particularly deranged or demented or, or, you know, different than any other American family. And yet their lives were destroyed. They had to leave their, their home. Their pictures are all over the internet. People regard them as, as accomplices to a horrible murder. I just think that's wrong. And I, I think that this story shows that we, we, we've, we've got a lot of introspecting to do as a country. So a couple more details here that I think I haven't mentioned yet. I believe that I mentioned that, that uh, Brian Laundrie's uh, remains were eventually found on October 21st. So, of course, when Brian Laundrie's notebook is found, the headline from that notebook is that, you know, Brian Laundrie confesses to killing Gabby Petito. And the one line that, that most of the news articles include from that notebook was uh, this line, I ended her life. He says, I thought it was merciful that it was what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. The full details of that note actually say that this is just Brian Laundry in his own words. Okay, there's I don't we have no idea if this is true. It it's probably distorted to make his situation seem better than it was. But in this notebook, he talks about uh, Gabby tripping and falling and hitting her head while they were trying to cross a stream to get back to their van. And according to him, she was kind of gravely injured, is what it sounds like. And he basically stopped and tried to kind of nurse her back to health. He built a fire for her to try to keep her warm. And at some point he realized that her injuries were so bad that like she she was suffering and that he should take her life. My guess is that 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 version of events is probably a little bit massaged by Brian Laundrie. So I think we have to consider whether what took place with regard to Brian Laundrie was not something akin to an extrajudicial killing by a lynch mob. America has a a long and, and terrible history with lynchings, and they really didn't stop until well into the 1950s in some parts of the country. In some parts of the country, it was not uncommon in the South and in the Old West for a mob to form and take a defendant uh, out of a courtroom, either pre-conviction or post-conviction, and have that person hanged or otherwise killed. And I think we would be fooling ourselves to suppose that 
just because, you know, the formal act of lynching someone, physically lynching someone, no longer really takes place here. I think it would be, I think it would be foolish to assume that that same sentiment and that same urge for vigilante justice doesn't still reside in all of us in some way. And we'd be naive to think that we don't have to continue to guard against that urge to act that way. You know, we have the benefit of hindsight sitting here today to look at a time period in American history when, you know, actual lynchings took place and we can easily cast judgment on those people, how barbaric they were and they were, there's no question. But I think it's important to consider that perhaps they also were supported by the broader community in many cases, and that they fulfilled a community urge for instant justice. We still have that urge today, and thankfully nobody is uh, really physically going out and lynching people anymore, but it's really uh, not necessary anymore because of the nature of our omnipresent corporate media and social media, because it's not that difficult to drive someone to suicide if you really want to. And so this is a very sad story. Gabby Petito lost her life. Brian Laundrie confessed to taking her life. And that was a tragedy. And we'll never know all the details surrounding that, but it was a tragedy. And in our attempt to get to the bottom of that tragedy, we created another tragedy for the Laundry family. And um, now we will never know all the details of what happened there. So that concludes the first episode of the What We Were podcast. I hope that conversation helped you to look at this situation in a new light. And I hope that it allows you to look at future situations like this in a new light and not rush to judgment and just try to always have empathy for your fellow man and woman and just not jump to conclusions about things. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you next time.